everybody. Happy New Year to all of you and uh, welcome not just to another edition of Finding Our Way, but this is actually our 100th episode and uh, we're thrilled that you've been tracking with us as we uh, try to provide inside scoops uh, for the life of our church and to celebrate this 100th episode. I thought, what, what can we do that's special? And I thought, I'm going to get a very dear friend of mine and probably my primary mentor, a guy by the name of Tim Day, to sit down with us and talk about everything he knows uh, about following Jesus. So Tim, uh, say hi to everybody, first of all. Hey, it's great to be with you, Jeff, and uh, to everybody listening. Um, welcome to a new year. Hopefully yeah. uh, 2021 will be a little better than 2020. Seriously, we uh, we talked about that uh, in yesterday's service as well. Uh, hey, uh, just remind our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your family background, things like that. Yeah, I grew up uh, not too far from Southridge, actually, in a little town called Shirkston. And um, so, yeah, I kind of grew up in the Niagara area, uh, went off, uh, did my uh, an undergrad in the U.S., a seminary up in Toronto, uh, church planted, then went over to the meeting house, was there for 14 years, uh, senior pastor, led the staff team there. And now in the last five years have branched off, been working across Canada. And so we'll work a lot with the Global Leadership Network and Alpha and denominations on the issue of how do we work together more collaboratively in cities and across the country, uh, particularly with all the challenges everybody's facing. Yeah, talk about that work a little bit. It's it's with an organization called City Movement. And uh, what's the heart of City Movement? Well, essentially, everybody's moving into the cities. Uh, and to what I mean by city is anything over 100,000 people. And um, those cities are, uh, particularly as they get larger, become more and more challenging for uh, two things. One, for the church to know what each other is doing so that we can be uh, better coordinated in terms of our mission rather than duplicating. And then the second thing is engaging younger, younger generations. And this has been going on for o- over 10 years, that younger generations are tending to kind of slide through the cracks and kind of slip away. And uh, a lot of them live in these cities. And so, you know, the city movement is really, and it's connected to a global conversation. This is happening globally um, in, in every continent. Uh, so part of that conversation was movement.org, if you want to take a look at it. But we're basically trying to get leaders together to think intentionally about this and say, okay, how can we work more cooperatively and collectively uh, together in these cities, and particularly with an eye to engage younger generations in the in the message and mission of Jesus. So um, taking what I learned at the Meeting House and applying with our team to the Canadian context, but also supporting the international dialogue. Yeah, super cool. And uh, just talk a little bit uh, for people who, who maybe have met you before. Uh, about your history with Southridge. How did you get connected with our our church? How did we connect? That kind of stuff. Well, um, well, first of all, the denomination I grew up in is a close cousin to the Mennonite Brethren. And so I actually have family, member that, family members that have been a part of Southridge. And uh, one of my family members actually worked at your um, shelter there. So I had those types of close connections. But through the Meeting House, uh, you and I are part of a group uh, that Willow Creek um, supported. Um, or now the Global Leadership Network supported when we were going in kind of like a leadership um, dialogue, we called it Leaders Village. And that's still going on. And that's kind of peer-to-peer discussion, learning about how can we work effectively as kind of large um, ministries, a bit more entrepreneurial 
um, ministries? What can we learn from each other, best practices and support each other and actually applying uh, leadership principles? So uh, work closely with you, Jeff, but then through the friendships of uh, the Meeting House and Southridge, had lots of crossover, lots of connection. You guys mentored the Meeting House in a lot of ways related to what we did in local um, our our local engagement and serving vulnerable people. You guys were kind of coaches and mentor t- mentors to us in that process. Well, it's nice to, nice to feel like we gave a little bit back because I know so many of the leaders that you've networked us with from the Meeting House and beyond have been huge influences in the life of our church, especially in the last five or 10 years. So uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. I want to dive right in. Um, first things first, Tim, you talked about your work at City Movement, and I know that uh, there's a, a, a real strong synergy with that ministry and a ministry called Waybase yes. uh, that collects data from across Canada. Talk about that relationship and, and how that process works. Yeah, uh, without getting too far into the story of it, because it's a bit of a longer story, that about uh, four years ago after we well, kind of interviewed a ton of people in a millennial think tank, I did a millennial think tank with 30 millennial leaders from across the country, realized that for the for some aspects of the church progress, we had to become better aware of each other. And so what we did um, in that context, or uh, kind of tackling that problem was look at what other sectors had done to organize the whole sector. So you think of LinkedIn for, you know, people understanding the profession, you know, people's professional lives or realtor.ca. There's a lot, they're called mass aggregating platforms that organize all the data in a particular sector allow people then to look in and see what's going on. And um, there's some for restaurants, for hotels, for travel. And no, but nobody had tackled the charitable sector. So we started a process of that. And that's basically aggregating all the public data, which includes um, public data related to the government and uh, what people put online about themselves on uh, websites and um, social media and um, synthesize that into a platform that uses listings to organize the key data. But in behind it, we can back up public data related to their financials. We also brought in all the demographic data that's public from the government and created in kind of an interactive platform that you can actually see what's going on in your city, see who's there, how big they are. Um, We're increasingly using uh, improving the data with data cleaning teams. And so it doesn't rely on people putting their data in. We actually kind of gather it, organize it, tag it, clean it, make it usable and discoverable. So there's about about 10 staff working on that and then data cleaning teams in Malawi and the Philippines. Some of our developers are in India. So it's uh, not a huge project, but it's a pretty good sized project in terms of organizing all the data of the Christian sector in Canada. And, and since the pandemic hit, what kind of data have you personally been focusing on the most? Um, well, we did, uh, we've done two national surveys, one in the spring, right when it hit, had a, a number of research partners that worked with us on that and then did a follow-up this uh, fall and now doing another one in January, then uh, tying all of that data back to the listing data that we have so that we can do some pretty in-depth analysis of it. And so, um, what we're trying to do is give uh, national leaders and interested church leaders a way to track what's happening across the country. And rather than just relying on anecdotal information, actually be able to kind of see how are we all doing? Because essentially nothing like this has ever hit the church before, where pretty much all forms of gathering, whether it's Sunday morning services or youth programs or 
programs related to serving vulnerable people, um, the vast majority of them have been shut down in some capacity. And so that just has had huge ramifications. And and I was going to say, like, what have you been learning or hearing specifically about the church and kind of the health or the challenges of the church during during the pandemic through this data? First phase, phase was uh, quite consistent in terms of everybody had to work just like other sectors to go online. And so um, under 20% of churches had some sort of online ability to operate under online. And within just a few months, that number went up to over 80% minute, 80% of the ministries. So similar to like grocery stores doing online ordering, there's just a huge wave of that. And that took a, a few months to actually get implemented this spring. Um, and that would probably be the biggest shift that happened this spring. Uh, immediately, there was a drop in finances. And so 60% of ministries saw some sort of decline, many of them significant decline uh, over what I mean by that is over 20% of their income uh, dropped. And so uh, that could go up to 50%, 40%. And so there was a significant drop in donations, a lot because um, people also were laid off. Uh, the whole service sector got laid off. And as you know, there's a, there's a huge economic wash across the country. What we found out is that economic decline was uniform pretty much across the country, rural, uh, every province, rural versus urban, suburban. And so it seemed to be mostly related to the economic impact of the pandemic. Now, coming back this fall, what we found is that that, that decline kind of continued. A lot of leaders in the spring thought it would continue. And they're, they're quite accurate, actually predicting where they thought they would be this fall in terms of their finances. Uh, there is a real question of how much catch up happens this December now. And so we're going to check that again in uh, January. I think the biggest thing that we're starting, what we saw in the fall data is um, the ability to return to gathering and services. It was happening, but then it closed again. And uh, I, if I was going to say the, the fall, the feeling of the fall or the experience of leaders in the fall is uncertainty, where it's kind of like we didn't know what was going on. I was very disoriented in the spring. We kind of got reoriented a bit in the summer, got a plan together for the fall, but that fall that fall plan ended up being very shaky for a lot of people in terms of the rise of the pandemic again and rising cases and things shutting down and a much higher infection rate. And so that just made everything very shaky. Yeah, we started talking about this. I remember earlier in the in the pandemic, just because of how prominent the the shift and the pivot was. Uh, for people specifically uh, in regards to their weekend services. And uh, one, one of the things, and this will focus our conversation a little bit uh, more clearly, I feel. Um, I remember early in the pandemic, you, you had felt like this could actually be a blessing to the church because I, I remember, I may not be quoting you exactly, but I remember you'd said to me that th this could free the church of its over addiction to Sunday mornings. Talk to me about what you meant by that. Yeah. Um, for a lot of, for the vast majority of churches, they see their Sunday morning gathering as the primary discipleship vehicle for their church. And whether that is a more, um, you know, kind of charismatic worship experience or a preaching, you know, we may use the phrase preaching the word or, um, uh, you know, sharing the Lord's Supper together or, or Holy Communion together and 
more of a, a sense of going through a shared experience of that. They still see this as primary as the primary way they're discipling people, the majority of their people. And, and so a lot of time, resources, everything funnels to those services, kids programs, youth programs. It's kind of like the one-stop shop that does everything. The, the challenge with that, and, and leaders would admit this, I think, most leaders would admit this, is you know, that's kind of collapsing everything down to maybe an hour, uh, an hour and 10 minutes maybe. And there's a lot of living that happens outside of that hour, but not a lot of time or energy left in leaders' minds and schedules to do much outside of that hour. And so uh, that kind of dependency, you might say attachment, addiction, uh, to that service, you know, has some long-term consequences for how we think about discipleship and how people are really doing. And um, and so by breaking that cycle, really forcibly breaking that cycle has made a lot of leaders really rethink, okay, how are we actually engaging people in their normal flow of their life, not just in a one-hour service or in a specific type of experience, but actually engaging them in the journey of life. And I think that's, I think that is ultimately going to be a very good thing. Yeah, because talk a little bit about what kind of faith you see Canadians engaging in when leaders are offering or, or organizing a ministry that is primarily focused on, or, or, you know, the, the majority of the resources, the majority of the eggs are invested in that hour on Sundays, that Sunday morning basket. Um, I think it's, and, and this is challenging. This isn't just for churches, but this is challenging for leaders of any, any effort. So if you think of a restaurant, it's kind of like if you serve up a particular food, the only people who come are the people who like your food. So if you tell yourself this, I offer the best food, it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the only people you ever talk to are the people who want your food, right? And they come in, oh, I love your food. But all the people who didn't like your food didn't aren't coming to your restaurant. So you actually don't know what they think of your food. You only know the people who like your food. So this is where it can kind of trick leaders into thinking, oh, I'm discipling people because I have people here who like what we offer. Not really thinking about the fact that actually you have the people who like what you offer there, the people who aren't helped by what you offer leave. And so you don't really get their input. So you really don't know how you're doing. It becomes somewhat, like I said, a self, a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, so I think one of the challenges with that is it kind of creates an internal feedback loop for leaders that they assume because Sunday morning is going well and people come up and say, Pastor, that was a great service, that all is well. And yet I think if you look out on the actual decline of the church across Canada, since World War II, there's been a 1% decline in people engaging on Sunday mornings. And uh, so, you know, we start out with a lot of people and just like a steady decline, 1% a year, 1% a year. Now we're down to about, you know, uh, 10%. Uh, prior to the COVID, okay, so if it drops again a couple percent, you know, we could be, you know, kind of within five years of very, very few Canadians participating in that Sunday morning that we say is our primary way we disciple. Right, right. Right. And and the interesting thing is, I mean, you've got, I like that you're starting with leaders and what leaders offer, what kind of quote unquote restaurant or food that they that they offer. But 
you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy means that the follower, the the disciple, uh, right, the, the Jesus follower, they reduce their definition of what following Jesus means to that hour on Sunday, to church going. Right. And so my, my question, I guess, first off would be, you know, knowing that it's not just the Jesus follower who suffers because of that limited definition of faith, how does the church goer paradigm of faith then translate into the impact that the church has or fails to have on its surrounding community? Talk about the impact nationally, because I know in your ministry, you've got a bit of a national perspective on the impact and the reputation of the church these days. Well, um, the churches had, you know, prior to, I would say, uh, 2016, the biggest um, challenge to the church in Canada was the the ability for the information on the internet to spread ideas to people in in a kind of like a direct service way. And so kind of a rise of a more secular, uh, anti-faith perspective that kind of was going through education really got amplified through the internet. And so there's a pretty strong in Canada, particularly strong, like secularism, like uh, kind of the um, Hitchens and Dawkins, atheism, the new atheism. A lot of that stuff was just bleeding out and having a big impact on, on a lot of people's perspective, right? you know, kind of whittling away at people's confidence in the church and other types of things too. You know, there's scandals that happen, things that happen with the, um, you know, uh, charges against the church for different types of abuse. So these things were eroding people's confidence. But then, you know, to be quite honest with you, the rise of Trump in the U.S. and the strong evangelical alliance to Trump has created another huge issue and follow that up this year with the the uh, me you know kind of the me too protest but the black lives matter there's a lot of uh uh christian organizations even who work in welfare in the area of welfare who are dis kind of disavowing being christian because they have a hard time garnering support because if you're associated with an evangelical or committed christian uh heritage then that may mean that you get associated with things that people see in the news all the time around, um, you know, a, a type of Christianity that is aligned with that type of uh, yeah the, the public behavior, and that right. that's that's really what what I'm seeing is is the gap that exists when you have such a Sunday centric view of ministry and such such a Sunday centric view of faith. You call it the 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 primary way of discipling people. In many ways, it's almost the exclusive way of discipling people. Yeah, for the vast majority. You know, what happens is that what happens in the building in that hour is so disconnected from what happens outside of the building in people's other 167 hours. And and there begins to be this huge difference between the church-going hour of faith and the true followership of Jesus that we're seeing almost exacerbated through all of these now uh, kind of mirrors, the Black Lives Matter mirror and the Trump okay. U.S. evangelical mirror and whatever. So, you know, describe for us then a little bit, you know, just the, the primary differences between the church going faith 
and the true Jesus followership. Yesterday uh, in our Sunday service, we talked about the invitation that Jesus actually offers us to true followership. Describe the difference between those. Well, in terms of the true, like the the church oriented, and, and for a lot of churches, they'll define following Jesus within uh, what I would call a very privatized faith and a very uh, church centric faith. So they would say, you know, if you're a committed Christian, you come to church. That's the first thing you do. And then we have um, practices that you do. Uh, you might call them spiritual disciplines or, or things that disciples do. Read your Bible. You pray. You come to church. You serve in our programs. Um, you donate to the church. And they, and they define almost everything either in a very personal, private way that nobody outside would necessarily know you're a Christian, or it's within the walls of the church. You've come, you've helped at our programs, etc. So in this way, um, you know, for a lot of people, their work associates would not know that th- anything really about their faith too much, um, other than they may know they don't swear. They notice maybe they don't swear, curse, or or they don't they don't work between eleven and twelve on Sundays. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And certain things that they don't do, maybe they notice they don't do. But other than that, you know, they're just kind of like, if you can put it in quotes, good people. And um, yeah, I remember uh, uh, Kevin Plow, the son of Louis, uh, Louis Plow, a big evangelist, when he was in um, San Francisco talking to the leadership there about. Um, churches helping out around San Francisco. San Francisco's, uh, you know, far from a kind of a well-known Christian city. You know, it's not the Bible Belt. And and uh, the people in the city of the leadership said, well, if they all help out, what about them evangelizing people, you know? And uh, Kevin's response was, if you get any of them to talk about Jesus, please let me know. Because as far as I know, there's no chance they're going to talk about Jesus. And he said that in a kind of like a joking way, but it's true. You know, that's, we don't have language. We don't have a way to live it or express it other than just maybe a list of things we don't do. We, you know, we don't get too drunk. We don't go to strip clubs. We don't swear. Um, you know, try to try to be uh, kind with people, not too much road rage. And it's very just being a good person. That's how it's defined. Um, so then when you come over to well, what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Not so much in terms of how a church defines it, but how it was, um, de- you know, described in the New Testament. What was the what were the big ideas that were captivating the disciples of Jesus and what they were trying to live? It really is hard uh, for uh, you know to just say one or two things. And sometimes the analogy I use in that is you know kind of asking the thing. Well, what's the difference between shooting hoops in your driveway and being an NBA player uh, playing for the national? And it's like it's not even, you know, it's like, I don't even know if it's like a relevant comparison. You know what right, I mean? Right. Right. Cause like you're shooting hoops. You're not really playing basketball. You're doing one specific thing. You have no one to pass to. You have no game. You have no competition. You have no training. You have, you know, nobody knows that you're doing it. You just kind of go in your driveway and shoot some hoops and that's it. You might kind of imagine that people are watching, but nobody's really watching you. Where if you're an MBA, you're training all the time. It affects your diet, affects everything about your life. It is a team sport. It requires that you learn all kinds of things to be competitive and you 
you do make a difference. Like you are doing something. You're trying to move the needle on something and it's intense and it costs, you know, it's, it kind of takes over your whole life, that kind of idea. And uh, for following Jesus in the first century, it was all life or nothing because of the persecution for the cost that they had to play, pay. And um, kind of their big ideas that were, were gripping them was, first of all, God was revealed to them as a father, a parent-child relationship. So if you think of what the ramifications of me with my kids, it was a whole life expectation of a relationship. And that made us brothers and sisters. And so I went from being a son of God or a daughter of God to having a family. That was defined then within the this concept of being a kingdom, a government being organized. We were working together, living together as family, sharing meals, um, and living not just as any type of family, but as a family that had a very specific set of values. And they saw themselves as... as um, people who are bringing healing and hope to the world. They were helping to reconcile relationships, welcome in people who had no sense of family and community. They were living counterculturally in terms of their value set. If you read the Beatitudes, it was a way of living. It wasn't just something they ascribed to, but it was a type of pathway, a commitment that went right from the beginning of letting go of any sort of you know, attachment to material goods to a humbling of the heart, of desiring mercy and reconciliation, working to heal relationships, being willing to suffer. It was a huge commitment and a whole life commitment that meant that you, there was no person that you would meet that you would not treat differently and significantly. And so as you start to go through these great orienting um, teachings of Jesus, like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord's Prayer, See how Paul describes it in books like the book of Ephesians. This is, right. this is the fruit of the spirit in Galatians. Yeah. Right. Or it's just such yeah. a holistic transformation of your life that if you came back and said, well, you know, really you just collapse it down to going to church on Sunday. You know, someone like the apostle Paul or Mary, who is, uh, you know, um, Mary Magdalene, who is, you know, one of the lead female disciples, they would, they would have laughed. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> We, yeah, we, the, the, the all-in, inside-out, ongoing transformation of a human heart that translates over time into such noticeable differences in how a person lives and the essence that they exude to others is so radically different than what I would say, at least in Canada, are the results of the approach that reduces a primary discipleship of people to an hour a week. Yeah, it, it, you can't even compare it. The, the, the expectation of the early church was that they were living in a vibrant relationship with God who could speak and guide them at any moment, that at any moment they may have to suffer a loss of loved one, that every relationship was changed into a deeply loving relationship. If there's a broken relationship, they would be proactive to heal that relationship, to make amends. When you read Ephesians, it talks about uh, training your mind with new mental habits, uh, replacing behaviors in your life, re rewiring, re-engineering every relationship, um, and then moving into the world with a, a, a type of 
of soldier-like resolve to stand against the cultural currents of the day and take up an active uh, role as a person of peace, as a person of reconciliation, of humble service, of sacrifice to serve others. It's just, it, it can't be compared to the just come and hang out with us for an hour and, you know, and all's well. So knowing that we've got people in our community kind of representing a vast spectrum of kind of spiritual places who are listening to our podcast, um, kind of wrapping things up, Tim, what, what would you like to say to them to encourage a 2021 of greater Jesus followership as opposed to minimizing our lives to a churchgoer version of faith? One, I think one of the, the first things I would say is the, the desire to reduce the Christian faith, to make it simple, to make it a checklist, to find the silver bullet, you know, all of that, you just kind of have to like permanently park that and get rid of that. And, and think of it more like if my whole life is going to change, what all needs to go into that? And I'll, I'll throw out a few things. I think one of the things that is um, a potential way that you could come into 2021 is first of all, do some pretty, do a pretty serious inventory of your life and say, you know, just even from this podcast, do, do a pretty serious inventory of your life and say, if I was to surrender every part of my life, every relationship to the perfect love and mercy of God, everything that is out of a line with that. If I were to imagine myself living in relationship with God and, and in close relationship with a group, a small group of others that I have high trust where I can be completely honest, what would all go into that? And just do an inventory. Where are you at? Then the next big challenge, and this is where it gets really tough, is, is there, can you find a few people that you trust enough to really have that type of honest conversation because I'm following Jesus is set within the context of people that you trust, that it's not something you do alone. It's not something where you just try harder. It's around finding some, a small group of people to start that type of journey with. And then, you know, in terms of where you, you spend some time doing some deep reflection with those people, you know, you don't have to go too far. Uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as I said, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, there's lots of places where you can just slow yourself down with this group of people and start to do this work together. Um, I, you know, Southridge to me is a great community that the reason we're having this conversation, Jeff, is because this is your heart and passion. And I would say, you know, find someone in leadership at Southridge and have a really good, thorough conversation and, and just say, okay, this this is my year to figure out what it's like for me to surrender every part of my life. Let me give you a story on this, just as we're wrapping up here. Um, and I don't think you'd mind me sharing it. I grew up, uh, one of the guys in my family is um, a cousin of mine. And we used to be the closest of kids, loved at Christmas time. Christmas time would be a time we would hang out, just couldn't wait to hang out together. But over time, as he moved into his adulthood, we just drifted apart. And what I didn't know is that he had kind of, you know, a bunch of addictions took over his life. And, and those addictions kind of had top, had a lot of control. And um, some involved some drugs, some alcohol. He's still working, he still had a family, but these addictions had a lot of power. He ended up 
going through um, an Alcoholics Anonymous program connected with the Catholic Church. And in that process, became committed to, to Jesus and had to go through a process of completely overhauling his life. And I can honestly say, I cannot believe the change in that guy's life in terms of, I can believe it, but it's astounding to me. But it did not come from just going to a church one hour a week. He had to go through a serious inventory of his life. He had to go back and rewire his relationships, become honest at a level he had never been before, invite people in. He had to learn new ways of thinking, new ways of living, whole new patterns of behavior. And to me, as I talk now with him, he is a follower of Jesus, and I see it in everything he does. And he inspires me. Honestly, he inspires me at the level that we need to, as the Church of Canada, we may not be addicted to alcohol or drugs. We may be addicted to a form of Christianity that has the same kind of limiting effect on our relationship with God. And it, it probably is going to take that same level of almost like Christianity anonymous, <laughs> you know what I mean, to actually break us out of our pattern of, of living and thinking to actually discover what Jesus wanted for us. Phenomenal gang. I hope as you're uh, listening to Tim, especially in this closing story, uh, you can get a sense for why I love this guy and love any opportunity I get to talk to him. So uh, Tim, thanks so much for helping us launch our 2021 and uh, feeling like it's going to be a very different year for us across our community. And hopefully we can help like you are uh, encourage people all across the country to embrace the fullness of the life that Jesus invites us into. Thanks for joining in with us, everyone. And uh, we'll see you again next week as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everyone.